Hello, hello. Good morning. Uh, if I met you, I'm Jason, and uh, so excited to preach today about this amazing topic. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about being disciples, and now we're going to be talking about making disciples. So uh, are you ready for that? I hope you are. Okay. Uh, there's always a common theme when you preach on any topic where you feel very not adequate to preach on that topic. If anybody's preached, you know what I mean. But we're all learning this together, and uh, today's going to be about our whole church uh, stepping it up together and really answering this call that we have to make disciples. Uh, I've taken quite a bit of what I'm sharing today from Robert Coleman and Larry Kreider and Dallas Willard, some books I've been reading, and, and the Bible, as you'll see just so you don't get concerned. All right, we're going to jump right in. I want to read this quote. You may or may not agree with this, but let's read the quote. Robert Coleman said, Discipling men and women is the priority around which our lives should be oriented. My conviction is that if making disciples of all nations is not the heartbeat of our life, something is wrong either with our understanding of Christ's church or our willingness to walk in his way. I just want you to consider that. Is that a true statement? If it's not the heartbeat of our life, something is wrong. You know, does the world need discipleship? Does God care about discipleship as much as this statement? I brought a nail gun today. This is my nail gun. And if you ever just want to feel better about yourself, just hold one of these for a few minutes. You feel good. So in high school, I worked construction in the summers building houses. And I worked with this guy called Jerry. Jerry got hurt every day. <laughs> and we weren't building small little houses. There were two-story, three-story houses. A lot of dangerous things going on. Jerry, as part of the crew, would just kind of go, he'd kind of watch somebody do something from far off, and then he'd go try it out himself. Now, if you've ever used a nail gun or a staple gun, in this case, he was carrying a two-inch staple gun. And what you do with a, with a staple gun is when you're putting sheets up on the side of a wall, once you get good, you pull the trigger, which doesn't shoot anything, but when you push tip of the gun onto something, then it shoots it. So if you want to go fast, you can just do your thing. And Jerry saw somebody doing this from across the way, and he started climbing up a ladder to do this to a sheet. Boom, boom, boom. And when you're climbing a ladder, what you do from watching the guys is you just kind of set this on your, your leg. And he's going fast, holding the trigger. Boom, boom, boom. Bam. Straight two-inch staple right into his thigh. I got to, I was about five feet from him when that happened. And then I got to watch Jim come and take some pliers and just... I have a lot of stories about Jerry. I have one more for you. If you're ever building a floor... What you do is you put all the floor joists and then you lay these sheets of plywood and you let them hang out over the edge. And we were about two stories up. And you, you kind of lay the sheets, you know, over the edge, over the edge. And then you come and take a skill saw and you just saw it off in a straight line. 
And Jerry's job was to cut it off. I was standing over here about 20, 20 feet away watching Jerry. And Jerry goes down to cut the plywood off. But Jerry was not on this side. Jerry was on that side of the plywood. And so, as I look up, true story, I yell, Jerry! And he disappears over the edge. <laughs> Fell too st- He survived. He survived. The reason I tell the story is because Jerry really struggled, literally, uh, every day. Not a very helpful part of the crew. Uh, until uh, this guy, Greg, came, and he, he was a veteran construction guy, been working for 20, 25 years, and he, like, adopted Jerry and taught him. He, like, he's like, Jerry, you're with me, man. <laughs> Took him everywhere with him and showed him little details and what to think about and how to, and Jerry became a great part of the team eventually, but it took some discipleship, and if I can stretch this analogy, are we not building a spiritual house together? Yeah, you're with me. Are we not building something? How important is discipleship to the church of Jesus Christ and all that he wants to build in his house? Uh, We have a lot of Jerry's. We've all been Jerry. Maybe not to the same level, but in the church, in this spiritual family, we can all uh, be in that stage where we just need discipleship. We need to be trained. We need to be raised up and nurtured. Jesus has a heart that every person would be cared for and shepherded. Uh, in Matthew 9, 35, this is one of my life verses that I really built my, life, built my lifestyle around. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like Jerry, like sheep without a shepherd. When he said to his, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Jesus looks at the crowd. We're a crowd right here. His heart broke for the crowd. Jesus Christ himself is standing in front of this crowd. You would think Jesus would Yeah, my heart breaks for you, but I'm here. Jesus is preaching. Miracles are happening. But he doesn't say that. He says, my heart breaks for them. They're harassed and helpless. They need need people to come and shepherd and care for these people. So the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. Jesus is saying the answer to the, the shepherdless, harassed sheep is they need shepherds to go out. Pray for more workers to get out there. And so Jesus, central to his heart is that every person is cared for, mentored, and spiritually fathered or mothered. Are you with me? Now, uh, I was definitely a good example of one of those people in the crowd that Jesus would have uh, had compassion on. Because when I came to Christ my freshman year in college, uh, I, at that point, was focused on doing architecture, playing some basketball, living college life. And, you know, I thought Jesus might be a good thing or Christianity might be good. Church is a good thing, but definitely not worth uh, my time to commit to something. So I did decide one Sunday, I'm going to go down to a church a couple blocks down the street. Uh, This will be my last time kind of going on a Sunday, uh, but just going to go one more time. 
And I went down there. I was sitting in the second to back row. And as they were playing some, uh, some songs up front, I was sitting there by myself. And the, suddenly this thought of heaven and hell came to mind. And I thought, oh, maybe I should give 30 seconds to think about heaven or hell, because that's kind of important if it's true. And I started to think, you know what, I've heard a lot of things. And I did something for the first time in my life, which is I prayed. And I was sitting there and I said, hey, God, uh, I hear a lot of things, been told things about Jesus. Jesus, if you're real, I need to know. Really simple prayer. And in that moment, it's very hard to describe what happened, as you know, when you encounter God. But I had a full-on power encounter uh, with God, where God came and felt, I felt physically hugged by God, heard God speak to me, tell me he loves me. Uh, me as a man who's probably cried twice since then, I wept and crumbled to the ground and tried to hold myself together but couldn't uh, because I encountered God. And everything changed. On the inside, in the deepest part of my inside did anyway, I, w I walked out of there just thinking, how have I missed this? My, like, Jesus is real. Every, this, you know, I got to respond to this. Everything's changed. I don't know what that means or what's even changed, but everything's different. And then I went out and had a terrible year and a half of struggling. And, you know, I'd pop into a church there, pop into a Christian club, hang out with some Christians, maybe. I think they were Christians. Uh, you know, and just feeling miserable because I was half knowing that God was real and I should be living a certain way. And then I was half just sinning and doing my thing. And I was miserable. It's a miserable place to live in that lukewarm middle ground. If you're in that place, get out of it. If you're in that place today, get off of the fence. You need to get all in with Jesus. It's a terrible way to live. And that year, year and a half, I wasn't sure what to do. Now, something amazing happened. I got invited to a life group. They call them cell groups at the church I got invited to. This guy, Joel, uh, invited me to a cell group, just a little group of college students that were meeting at an apartment. I walked into this thing, and I'll always remember it because there was three guys there that still stand out in my mind. And I was just blown away by these three guys because they talked like they knew. There was, was something different about them. They just kind of exuded out of them is what I remember. Like the Bible just kind of came, and they weren't reading. It was just coming out of them. And they talked like they knew God, and they spoke differently, and their whole life just felt different. And so these guys kind of took me in and I started just watching and seeing what it means to follow Christ. I, you know, in college, you just kind of crash on somebody's couch whenever you want, right? And uh, I was like sleeping on the couch for one night there. And then I'm like, what is that noise? And I wake up at 6 a.m. And, they, you know, there's one of them's on their knees reading their Bible and worshiping. I've never seen that before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> reading a Bible. We get in a car to go to the beach. They're like, hey, let's pray before we go. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? What is going on? Uh, watching them care for each other, pray for each other, uh, trying to help their friends. And my life started getting transformed. And then a real miracle happened where I started going to church and this guy came up to me. His name was Mark. He's about 10 years older than me. And he said, hey, Jason, let me take you to lunch. And he bought me a glorious tri-tip sandwich, which is a wonderful, you know, God loves you when that happens. Uh, but what... 
what was amazing is it was the first time in my life I had a, had a man sit in front of me, uh, sitting across the table. He said, hey, Jason, uh, I care about you a lot. I've been praying for you. I want to help you grow in Jesus. Uh, let's start meeting every week. Uh, he opened a Bible, put it on the table, shared a scripture with me, prayed for me. And I, I don't know how it was for him, but for me, that, that day marked my life forever. It was a total, never seen anything. I've never had a guy talk to me like that. I've never had somebody like say they, they, they want to help me. We started doing church stuff together, but then I was going on errands with him. And we eat, eat a meal. You know, why he's painting, he painted houses for a living. Why he's painting houses, I'd be hanging out with him and he'd be teaching me about Jesus. And then I'd go to his house, hang out with his kids. And, you know, it was this life on life thing. And from that day of having that tri tip, that's why tri tip's so central to my life, uh, it, my, my life with Christ just skyrocketed. And, you know, every person would greatly benefit from having a spiritual father or mother in their life. Every person would greatly benefit from having a spiritual mother or father in their life. Jesus's answer to his problem when he said, my heart breaks for the crowds, was to commission his disciples to go shepherd people. Matthew 28, we know the commission. Matthew 28, 19, therefore go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. If you look at the original text in this, if you want to nerd out a little bit on it, the words go, baptizing, and teaching are all participles of the lead... Participles... Participles. Robert, the scholar is laughing at me. Participles. Of. You ruined it. It was going to be so scholastic and amazing. Of the leading verb, which is make disciples. In other words, all of those three actions and, uh, you know, calls to action are all submissive and support the make disciples call. So going is about making disciples. Baptizing is about discipling. Teaching, it's all discipling. This whole commission is go make disciples. Go shepherd people. That's your commission and my commission. Robert has to deal with this as well as everyone. I'm going to call out some names. No, I need to do. We all need to deal with this commission we've been given but it's for a good reason. Jesus wants people to be cared for and raised up and mentored. We want to become a, a, a church and a spiritual house, a spiritual family that's healthy. And that means that all of us have this call on our lives. Have you ever noticed anyone who spends time with Jesus gets sent out to go make disciples? Just saying. The three, the 12, the 72, the 120. Like anybody that's like getting in the heart of Jesus lays down everything and goes make disciples. That's when you get closer and closer to Jesus, you're like, I need to make disciples. I need to go. So that's our commission. And, you know, God's compassionate heart toward every person is totally demonstrated uh, all throughout the Bible, through Jesus, through the early church. You know, there's countless examples of spiritual parenting. You know, Jesus parent, spiritually dis uh, discipled the 12. 
Paul discipled Timothy. Elizabeth became a spiritual mother to Mary. Elijah became a spiritual parent to Elisha. Moses to Joshua. And I won't read the 50 on the list here. And Paul, you know, the early church carried this heart, the same heart that Jesus had. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians. This, to me, is my current favorite scripture on discipleship. If you want something to base your life of discipling others on and spiritually mothering, father, fathering others, this is an amazing basis for it. Uh, listen to Paul's language. He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives. So he's saying, we didn't just preach at you from a stage. We didn't just teach, teach. We shared our life, like you got my life. Life on life with you. And then, verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. So these are the things that a spiritual mother or father does is encouraging somebody. Life, like eyeball to eyeball. You know, Mark's sitting across a, a tri-tip sandwich from me, encouraging me, comforting me. You know, I used to go to his house when I was in times of crisis or had big questions or needed prayer, right? Encouraging me, urging you. He was urging me to live and step it up. He'd call me out on things. Urging you to live lives worthy of God. Verse 19, for what is our hope? This is Paul's motivation. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So Paul's saying nothing else matters in life. When we stand before Jesus, it's only going to be souls. It's just people. Nothing else. So what's my crown? It's you, my spiritual kids, right? Like this is the heart of Jesus, the heart of Paul, the heart of the church. And I just... Uh, I'm amazed by that language uh, that we can wrap our lives around. So I have a question for us all. Is today's modern, popular version of church raising up mature disciples of Jesus? It's a good question on the whole and especially for us. Are we raising up mature disciples of Jesus who are becoming spiritual mothers and fathers? Uh, it seems, generally speaking, across the church in America that instead of a believer, a new believer being urged to develop a deep and nurturing relationship with a spiritual parent, they're more just pushed to, you know, you know go to those big group events and read your Bible and get teaching and right? And, you know, the problem with that is that without that role of a spiritual mentor and parent directly involved relationally, uh, that it often, you know, people often remain spiritual infants or just stuck in puberty, <laughs> right? And they just don't grow, they never get out of the house. They're just kind of stuck. It's like, oh, I keep hearing good stuff, but my life's not getting transformed. I'm not, not becoming mature. Paul actually had this problem in Corinth where Paul went and led the people of Corinth to faith in Christ. But then when Paul physically left that place, a lot of problems started happening because they had a lot of teachers teaching things. 
And the people of Corinth became really arrogant in their knowledge, uh, but they were immature as believers. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 4.15. He says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. So he's like, hey, you, I know you have a lot of people teaching you stuff, but you don't have many fathers. I'm, I'm a father. And as he was calling them out and trying to help get them back on track, it's really interesting to see Paul's strategy to get that church back on track. What did Paul do? He sent Timothy, his spiritual son, in verse 17. It says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life. And He's like, I'm sending my son because he's going to remind you of what this church is supposed to look like. This is supposed to be, you know, spiritual mentoring and fathering, mothering. This is not just meant to be people teaching at you. This is supposed to be in the mud together, face to face, growing up into maturity together. And Timothy, my son, will remind you because he lives it. He's experienced it. I wanted you to know I'm going to the gym been going for two weeks, and I know it's a little intimidating looking at my arms already. That's why I wore the long sleeves. So I had a little injury for a little, way too long, on my right arm. But two weeks ago, I'm like, all right, let's go. Getting back in. I'm talking trash to my son because he's getting stronger than me, and I can't let him bypass, you know, my adult strength. So uh, I go to the gym, and if you've ever walked into a public gym, there are some jokers in these, there's some characters. And uh, if you want to get in and start learning how to do something correctly and, and, and well, I would not recommend walking in and just looking around. Because you'll see people making up their own routines. You'll see people, I can't describe some of it. You'll see people doing things that you're like, you're going to die in a second. Uh, you're going to see people, lazy people. You're going to see people just there to pose. You're going to see the real deal people, which you shouldn't try to do either. Uh, and so I've learned over the years the importance of discipleship and mentoring. And so I'm paying $7 million to this guy to help me. Uh, get, Omar, he's awesome. But I need some training. I need somebody like in my face, like showing me what to do properly so that I'm not lopsided or something. And, uh, you know, he's training me up. And, you know, we need, as we come into the, the house of God, we need this. You've got to seek it out. It's worth the cost. Like, go find it. Go find mentorship. Go find discipleship. Life on life. Otherwise, we can get weird and off track. And we can miss God's original intention for us. I want to say the Bible is our standard. If we want to build all people's church, the spiritual family together, this is our standard. We shouldn't be looking to the left or the right or whatever church is this and that. Let's look to this. Let's look to Jesus as our standard. What is it meant to look like? I would challenge you, if you stripped away everything you know about church or seen at church or heard about church, and you just read the book of Acts and said, okay, that's what church is supposed to look like, that's, a, that's challenging. I had a, a pastor in my life who said, uh, 
he said, never adjust the standard to meet your life. Adjust your life to meet the standard. And we as a church, let's never adjust the standard of what we're called to be as a, as a church family to kind of function along with our, our lives. Let's adjust our lives to meet the standard. Let's go back and remind ourselves of what we're meant to be. Robert Coleman wrote this. He said, the apostolic church, so the original church, the early church, not the prevailing mediocrity of our religious communities sets the norm. Where we perceive our shortcomings, in all honesty, we should seek to bring our lives into conformity with the New Testament standard. So let's do, let's do it. Now, I want to ask, does every believer need to wrestle with this commission? I really think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, when we give our lives to Jesus, we, it's, it's not just a philosophical action. You actually become a new creation. You have a new path, a new identity on your life. A new path to maturity is placed on you. It is your identity. And what's amazing is in 1 Peter 2.9, it says that your identity has actually changed where we have all become priests. We have all become priests in the house of God. So previously there was one, one priest that would go to God and bring that back for the people. But through Jesus, we have received a new identity of priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Okay, so we've been given this new identity. And I want to tell you that this is... This is interesting. If you look at what a priest did, I have this picture of, of a priest. Uh, from the time of Moses and Aaron, the high priest was instructed to wear this breastplate. Uh, this breastplate uh, had 12 jewels, each made from a specific mineral, not the same as each other, and each stone represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why would the priest wear this? Well, it says in Exodus 28, verse 29, it says, whenever Aaron, the high priest, enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the son of, sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. I'd love you to grab this little piece of paper that's on your seat. Some circles on it. This is my amazing rendition of the breastplate. That the, I was going to make you all a craft, but we're sticking with this. I'd love you to put this on your heart. What I'm trying to get to with you is the commission to be spiritual mothers and fathers is not something you're called to do. It's who you are. You're, you already have this, actually, on your, on your heart. It's there. I don't know if you have any names written on those stones. But the priest is supposed to have names written on the stones. That means that when you go before God, you're not just meant to go by yourself to get stuff for yourself. You're supposed to be carrying others before God, crying out for them carrying them as if they were your own children. 
as if they were your own children. Even today as we talk, I, God's going to bring names to mind that you need to actually write. Or write the initials or write them in here. Write your own kids in there for sure because they're your first disciples. But we should all be carrying others before God. This should be right on our heart. Isn't that awesome? That the priest carried that right on his heart as a continual memorial to the Lord. Just like, hey, I'm not here just for me. <laughs> this, is for the, this is for who I'm carrying. Do you know uh, God will put people on your heart that you're meant to spiritually mentor, spiritually disciple? I have a, I have a new name. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But, you know, a couple weeks ago, God, again, you seek the Lord. God speaks to you and you go, okay, I'm carrying this guy. He doesn't know that. But I, you know, every day when I go to pray, I'm crying out for his life right now. And he'll know soon because, you know, I want to go and, and call him into that kind of relationship. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens, man. It's going to be good. If you think you can't do this, I'm going to prove that you can. Are you ready? I'm going to prove it. Sorry if you heard me tell this story before. You, you need to hear it again anyway. Uh, I traveled to Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, uh, many years ago. As a pastor, that was, I was going to visit uh, one of the largest churches in the world in Bogota. My tasks were to learn how do they do kids' church and how do they do small groups and discipleship. So that was my job. Okay, so I show up. I go to a little event they're having on a Friday night. Uh, it's outside in this big park. There are 80,000 people out on the lawn, and I'm under-exaggerating. I don't know what that word is, but I'm under. It was a sea of people. Uh, it was a worship night, and so I'm, I'm out there at this huge event trying to learn about kids' church and how they do <laughs> small groups and discipleship. There's a girl about this tall uh, playing with a, like a soccer ball, and then we end up we end up kicking this ball and I'm like, Oh, maybe she goes to kids church. And so she speaks enough English where we're, we're talking. I'm like, Hey, how old are you? She's nine years old. Hey, can you help me? Like, what do you do for kids church? And she said, I run a cell group. And I said, you didn't understand what I said because I'm speaking English and this is your second language. And so I like leaned further. I was like, no, 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 no what do you do for kids' church? And she was, she went like this, and she, and she said, I run a cell group. <laughs> like, and uh, I said, okay. In my mind, maybe she means something different than I think of what that is. And I was like, T can you tell me a little more? And she said, yeah, I have a cell group of 12 girls. They're nine years old. They're in my class, and they come to my house every week, and I, I teach the Bible and pray with them. And And I'm, at that point, sincerely, totally embarrassed because uh, I'm like, she's outperforming me <laughs> as, a, as a disciple maker uh, and just felt totally inspired but humbled. And, and then she goes, and I'm starting a second one for, for eight-year-olds. <laughs> and she's like, I only have seven in that one, though. <laughs> So I'm asking her, I'm like, how did you do this? Uh, how does this work? And she said, well, me and my parents, this is literally what she said to me, me and my mom and dad, we wrote down 12 names of girls in my class. And for two months, every day we prayed for them. And then she said, after about two months, 
We felt like God said, go invite them. I went and invited them, and all of them came. <laughs> you can do this, people. Uh, in my dream for us as a church, and what I loved about that moment, and what I kept experiencing there, and at, and at some others, I was in a crowd of 80,000 people, remember? I pulled one random person out of the crowd. And she spoke to me with as much passion and clarity and determination as the lead pastor who I would talk to. Total, totally. Speaking the same, the same heart, vision, drive, compassion for people. I'm here to make disciples. There was no difference between like clergy and, you know, the audience and the path. It's just, no, we're all doing, we're doing this. This is all of our commission. This is not something you need to do. This is who you are. Did you know I became a dad when I had a kid? (laughs) It does blow your mind when your identity actually changes, right? When you have a child. And how many of you know you can't take a break from being a dad? It's not a job. A job, you can take a break. You can go find a different job. But if you're a father and you take a break, what is that? That's neglectful. That's neglecting your role and who you are. Making disciples, spiritually mothering and fathering people is not a job that you just choose to do or not. I'd hate to tell you, but as a, in Christ, this is, on, this is part of who you are. We can neglect it, but we shouldn't neglect it. This is central. I agree with that quote I read to you at first. I agree with it. I think, and for me, I got to consider, is this central to my life? Is this how I live? Because it is who I am. It's part of our identity. We're all called to become spiritual mothers and fathers. Uh, The Great Commission is not a special calling, and it's not a spiritual gift. It's just who we are. Bankers, mechanics, teachers, doctors, nurses, students, men, women, young, old. We're all commissioned to make spiritual, to become spiritual fathers and mothers. I do want to recognize one thing as we, as we end. There's different stages of maturity in Christ, you know. First, you're a child. You're an infant. Uh, when you're an infant, you need people to come and pursue you and, like, spoon feed and, right, and, like, help you eat because you're learning. I needed it. When I went to that cell group, I was just sitting back, and those guys were, like, helping me. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. Do you know I visited, random side note, do you know I visited 33 churches here in San Diego nine years ago? Uh, and I purposely tried to, tried to look like a, a needy um, infant, like, I don't know how to say this, this is weird. But I would like purposely just be like, look a little lost like I need some help. <laughs> do you know out of 33 churches in San Diego, three had somebody come and Pursue me. All peoples was one of them. Praise God. But I'm telling you, you can tell when there's a people and a spiritual family that are looking and have a heart. 
I could tell, I could, I could see it in their eyes. I'd be sitting there and I'm like, I'd see somebody see me. And I'd see that little glisten in there. He's coming. I knew. I'm like, that guy's coming for me right at the end of this service. And sure enough, he he had me on his radar. He's a spiritual father. He saw me sitting by myself. Can't help himself. I want that for us. I want us to be a culture of spiritual fathers and mothers that are helping children. And I want to recognize some of us are infants in this room. That's great. We want a lot of infants all the time. People coming to Christ, but we need to progress. We need to grow up into young men and women spiritually. Those teenage years, <laughs> learning how to eat ourselves, learning how to go find God's word ourselves, right? Taking responsibility as part of the family. We're growing up, but then we can't stop there. And this is where most people stop. They stop in those teenage years. They never become spiritual fathers and mothers. This is not an age thing. I became a spiritual father at 20 years old. That, that's when I started pouring my life into other guys. And some of them were older than me. You pour your life into, this is a maturity thing. And I just want to call us guys, we got to become and see it on our radar. I am called to be a spiritual mother or father. I'll end with this story, the, the prodigal son story. There was a father, the youngest son went off, sinned, wild living, repented, came back to the father. And the elder son was sitting there a little bit grumpy about that whole situation, if you remember. And it's often been a a little activity where you can look at a painting of that prodigal son story, and they'll ask you, which one are you? Are you the young son? Are you the older son? And I heard this amazing quote that I thought was so great. Uh, He said, whether you are the younger son or the elder son, you have to realize that you are called to become the father. Wherever you're at right now, you might be the young, you might, the young son just, just came back home. And like, Father, I got nothing. Like, will you, will you even take me back? Great. You're called to become a father one day. You know, if you're the eldest son, maybe in a grumpy place in your life, <laughs> you know, struggling, not, you know, but your father's going to help you get through that. You're gonna, you need to become a father one day. One day you're the father looking for those kids to come home and to raise up your children, right? We are all called. This is our calling to become fathers and mothers. Let's stand up together.